This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Melissa Phoebos, author of two memoirs entitled Whip Smart and Abandon Me. Her work has appeared in Salon, The New York Times, Tin House, The Rumpus, and Guernica. Her memoir, Abandon Me, is a series of story-like essays that focus on Phoebos' search for her birth father, relationship to her sea captain, adoptive father who raised her as his own, her Native American roots, and a tempestuous love affair, and the myriad of feelings, both physical and emotional, that accompanied that. Abandon Me is, at its heart, an examination of love in its many forms, particularly those that are not obvious or rarely named. We began the discussion talking about Phoebos's intensity as a person and a writer, and if the act of writing diffused some of that concentrated emotion. My work is very intense, or that's what people tell me, and my personality in life among known people um, exists in kind of a stark cr- contrast to that in, in certain respects. Um I mean, I think we all sort of possess these polarities in our personality. And like, I crack a lot of jokes. I laugh a lot. I'm very gullible. Like, I'm generally pretty cheerful and highly energetic and goofy. I love puns, you know, like a bunch of stuff that doesn't really ever make it into my work. And I think part of that relates back to your question um, in that writing is the place where I um, untangle or confront the intensities that are difficult to digest or difficult to live with or difficult to bring into the other spheres of my life. You know, when I was a kid, um, I just experienced life very intensely. I had a lot of feelings. I perceived a lot of other people's feelings and I felt like I was sort of combusting with it all of the time. And I think that's part of how and why I came to writing so young that I needed a a drain. I needed like a faucet <laughs> to like make some room, you know? Um, and, and what it means to me has developed a lot over the years, but that initial sort of impulse to have a place where I could express and look at and engage with those more intense parts of my personality in a safe way, um, has remained the same. Can you tell me a, a little bit about your title for your memoir and essays? It's called Abandon Me. And in the essays, you looked at the concept of abandonment so much from from the specific definition to how it looks and feels in relationships and in the cultural context, including the relationship to self. I came upon this title in a way that basically inverted the way I have come up with titles ever before that and and maybe ever after, usually when I think of a title, I've already completely finished writing something and it feels like the last piece of the puzzle. And, and I enjoy that process of trying things out and feeling their edges and, and sort of listening for that click when I find the right one. And with this book, I hadn't written any of it. And I was in the midst of this very, very intense life experience that I describe in the book, this sort of maelstrom of a love affair. Um, and I think I had already made a decision to go find and meet my birth father for the first time. Anyway, it was a harrowing moment in life. And one day I just had this thought um, that I was going to write a book about all of it, whatever that meant. 
and it was going to be called Abandon Me. And I wrote it on an index card and I stuck it on the wall of my kitchen in my Brooklyn apartment and it stayed there for a year. And then I moved it with me to my next apartment and it stayed on the wall there for another year. And sometime in there, I began writing the essays, but I didn't know that they were part of the book. And I, and in some respects, I think maybe it was a premonition or foresight of some kind, but mostly I think I was in a very painful place in my life. And I had a reference for the experience of performing this kind of alchemy on painful life experiences and turning them into art. And that being a process of coming to terms with them and forgiving myself for them mostly. And in that, in that crevice of suffering that I was in at that moment, I think I needed that thought. I needed to believe that it would be, there would be a way to perform that alchemy on those experiences and to make it useful and to make it comprehensible. And maybe inherent in the title was that wish that it was going to become an imperative. It was going to be something that suggested I had agency in it or that was good, you know, that I wanted to happen because it turned into something useful. So I want to talk about your male storm of relationship and your search for your mm -hmm. father. And the book goes into that and and we see the intensity and your feelings and the pain involved. And at some point you talk about love addiction. But I'm wondering if when you started this book and then when you finished it, if anything about your own self-worth changed in the process. It did. Um, I mean, I don't, certainly my self-conception, you know, um, I think it's our tendency as humans and as humans who suffer to feel as though things happen to us. <laughs> but what, at least what I tell my students when I talk about plot is that the most important aspect of a plot is that it's comprised of a chain of cause and effect and that the things that happen to people or that happen in the lives of people are largely the consequences of their and other people's actions and some collaboration between those. All of that to say that the process of writing this book, particularly the parts about the relationship I describe in it, were very much a process of scrutinizing what happened, kind of um, tearing away the narratives and mythology that I'd built around it and around myself while I was in it in order to stay in it, in order to feel okay about myself, in order to romanticize it, all the reasons that we build stories around things. Um, so I had to sort of peel that away so that I could look at what had really happened. And one of the most remarkable truths that, that I found was that I had chosen all of it, that I had recognized it as something I needed to do, something I wanted to experience, some part of myself and my own fears that I maybe needed to confront and maybe some trauma from my history I needed to reenact. Whatever reason, I think all of those probably, um, I picked this person and I picked this experience and I hung on for dear life, even when everyone else in my life thought that it, it would have been better to let it go. Um, and so one of the ways that my conception of self changed as a result of writing this was that it, it allowed me to be more accountable for my own choices and, and the agency that I had in my own suffering and my own growth. And, you know, what it also did was, um, I mean, and I, 
I hope that this happens for every memoirist. It's always happened for me as a result of writing about my own most painful experiences. I always find a deeper kind of empathy and compassion for my past self. And, you know, that's not really my nature. My nature is to reject the parts of me that confound me or that seem innocent or that seem self-destructive or that I just don't understand. I'd rather just sort of push the past in the past and continue barreling forward, likely making the same mistakes. But writing forces me to stop and slow down and examine what happened and look at it in a more honest way. Um, and it's, it's hard to do that and to not really look at your character's motives, right? And to see where they're coming from and to look at the larger context of both a person's life, but their family history, and even the larger scope of history that they exist in and the legacies that they're carrying forward in their own behavior. And it's hard, it's hard to dismiss or exile or hate um, anyone whose story you really understand, right? And, and so that's, I've also arrived at that kind of kindness and forgiveness of myself because I've written about it. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Melissa Phoebos, author of two memoirs entitled Whip Smart and Abandon Me. Our interview was recorded on Skype. So in the book, you chronicle this relationship with Amaya, and it started off, it sounded, it seemed to me a lot like it was a very lustful relationship. There was a lot of physical attraction, but there was also like a deep, deep wanting. Also, such a clash like between what you both needed and wanted or thought you wanted. And so I'm just wondering if you can describe it. Was it a love addiction and how you got out of it? You know, in terms of the love addiction question, I think that I don't really believe that sort of diagnoses and titles have their own integrity. You know, they're just shorthand for a recurrent list of behaviors or symptoms or just a list of things that sort of have gone together more than one time, <laughs> if that makes sense, you know. And so I don't, you know, I think that it's possible to pathologize that kind of relationship and you know, a lot of people would call it a love addiction. Um, I have called it that, but I don't, I don't really have a, a need to classify it just as that because it was, it could be described in many, many other ways, you know? And I think for me, I hope for both of us, but certainly for me, it was a kind of redemption journey. You know, I think that we choose the people we do, not because we hate ourselves or we want to suffer, but because we're looking for some kind of redemption or some kind of healing or so many of the things that we call sort of pathological or self-destructive or compulsive or self-hating are really sometimes misguided, but attempts to self-soothe or to heal ourselves. And we, and we look for those opportunities in, in familiar places. Also, I am just an addict, like that's kind of a biological aspect of my personality, you know, and, and no lover is responsible for that part of my personality. And it was certainly fully engaged. You know, a lot of the ways that I behaved in that relationship, I recognize as coming from that part of me that is always hungry, that never has enough, even when it's had too much. Um, that is so 
good at convincing me that I can't live without something that I can actually live without. Um, and so leaving that relationship, I think was a, was a function of all those other things I've just named. I had to face the risk of deciding to live without something that I really felt in some profound and deep place that I could not live without, that I would perish in some fundamental way without that relationship. Um, and I also, I also had to reach the end of whatever that redemptive journey was, you know, I mean, in the book I write about Carl Jung and how he had this like seven year mental breakdown, um, or at least it was perceived by everyone else as a, as a mental breakdown, but he thinks of it as this incredibly important journey. He called it the numinous beginning when he sort of delved into himself and faced all of his demons and archetypes and parts and shadow parts. And he got all of the information that he claimed became the basis of his life's work that we now look to, you know? Um, and so, you know, I'm not making a direct comparison between myself and Jung in that respect, but, but I do think that I was in that relationship to get a certain amount of information and have certain experiences that I could take back into the rest of my life and integrate them, um, so that I could be a, a complete person and so that I could be more useful to other people. I'm curious about this head and this heart dichotomy because you have this wisdom, you you know a lot about this psychology, you know about human nature. And so for you to be in this relationship when you knew all these things at the same time, like you knew about young, you knew the psychology, you knew the primal wound. Mm -hmm. Did did how do you how do you justify or explain that? Oh, I wish. I have been trying to justify or explain that dichotomy my entire life. Like seriously, I have gone back and looked at my journals from when I was 11 years old and in them I write, I understand about patriarchy and I understand about feminism and I know that I should love my body, but I hate my body and I have an eating disorder. And like, why can't I just take the ideas that I know like into my self. Like, why can't I function out of those instead of these other seemingly much smaller parts that believe all the stories that my culture has given me about what a woman's body is or like what a woman is. Um, you know, like I've been tangling with this my whole life. And I think the whole time I was in that relationship, you know, it's like, I mean, it's just happened to me my whole life. Even when I was a heroin addict, I would like, like, it's just, I've been, I've watched myself do things that I know better than my whole life. And I was in that relationship and I was like, this is crazy. Like, I know that your true love is not supposed to create conditions in your life that feels like it threatens every single other thing that nurtures you. Like, that's not how it's supposed to be. I know that. And the people I loved and trusted who knew me were telling me that. And I just wasn't done, you know? And I think, you know, I, in some ways this experience and writing about it has reframed that question for me in a, in a more generous way, because I've always thought of it as how do I make myself see the sense? Like, how do I make myself do the right thing? And now on the other side of this, like most excoriating experience of it, I feel more like, okay, maybe, you know, this is just like another 
example of F. Scott Fitzgerald's thing about, you know, the sign of a true intelligence being able, being the ability to hold two opposing truths in one's mind at the same time and not perish. And maybe those two truths sometimes are that, you know, your girlfriend and you are not in a healthy relationship and it's really painful and it's destructive in other parts of your life. But also at the same time, you're doing some kind of work. You're looking for something that is important and you need to live out this like unhealthy behavior in order to get to a place where you're capable of more and where you're able to really ingest and enact and integrate that larger wisdom. One of the messages of the book is to greet that inner conflict with a little bit more softness and accept that the choices you make are not bad or stupid or sick necessarily. They might just be the thing you need to do right then that doesn't agree with your most intelligent thoughts. (laughs) You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Melissa Phoebos, author of two memoirs entitled Whip Smart and Abandon Me. Our interview was recorded on Skype. Well, I read this book as also a love letter to both of your fathers, and I don't know if you would agree with that. It doesn't mean it's not honest or have ugly parts, but you have your uh, birth father who you really didn't see after you were a baby, and then your adoptive father who you really considered as your father growing up, and they both had shortcomings from addiction to being gone all the time. Can you talk about this aspect of the book? I kind of love that. I haven't thought of it as a love letter to both of them. Um, Maybe I have in terms of my adoptive father who raised me, but I love that idea because I, you know, there's a part in the end of the book where I'm talking about my, my birth family, my paternal birth family and how they're damaged, you know, they're hurt people and some of them have hurt people. And, but I sort of, get them. You know, there's like a way that I recognize myself in them and I recognize their wounds and I recognize the ways that they're trying to comfort themselves and the ways that they're trying to take care of the other people in their lives. And I'm interested in an idea or a definition of love that is, that doesn't require that we forgive or cosign or, um, support or share anything about the other person's behavior or experience, but, you know, a kind of love that's defined by our willingness and interest and ability to just look at all of them and sort of accept that. I mean that in sort of like a bigger sense of not accepting any behavior that they give us, you know, but just saying like, there you are, like, and I see, I see how you got that way. And I have, I have love for that. I have tenderness for that, you know, and so much of this book is about looking at those two fathers and those shortcomings that you mentioned and others and looking at myself and my own shortcomings and the painful decisions I've made and just looking at it, stepping back and looking at those people and those stories in a way that doesn't exile any part of them that acknowledges the the dark parts and just sort of says like, there you are. I see you, you know, I see how you got this way. And, and maybe there is forgiveness in there 
for me, you know? And so if that's love, then it is, it is a love story and a love letter to all of those people. Well, one of the things you talk about, alcohol and abuse and all that kind of thing, and you focus a little bit on the transmission of trauma and that idea. Your mm-hmm. um, through your for your through your birth father, you have Native American in you, and you talk about that, and your your adopted father and Puerto Ricans and how they were treated. And mm-hmm. I'm just wondering about your interest in the transmission of of trauma. You know, it's a it's a particularly American way of life and thought to isolate ourselves and act as though we sprung up out of our own minds, you know, or that we invented all of the things that we are or ourselves or this country, you know, like we didn't come up with this. It was here. (laughs) There were other folks here before us, both sort of physically and metaphysically. Like, and so I think, you know, this sort of individualism or, or self-invention that, that we're so attached to, the problem with that is that it fails to acknowledge or look at what's been given to us and what created us and where we come from. And, and there, and if we don't do that, you know, it's like the, um, Santayana quote about, you know, if we don't acknowledge history, we're doomed to repeat it. And I think that's true in both a, a personal individual way and also in a national or historical way. And for me, just in terms of my own story, it's been such a relief to acknowledge that because I have parts of me that are hurt, you know, and that have hurt other people and that have sought out experiences that were damaging to me and other people. And, and I have like grief, like I embody certain kinds of grief. And I think growing up as part of a a nuclear family in America that was made up of like multiple ethnicities, multiple histories. And both my parents are like smart, very driven people from sort of rough working class backgrounds. And I think they were into sort of reinventing their way of life. And mostly I benefited from that, but, um, it was really important for me to go back and look at where I come from and look at where my parents come from and look at where all my different people, all the people I come from, what they suffered and what was done to them and what was done by them because those blueprints are what made me in in small ways, the ways that, you know, my parents um, felt abandoned by their own parents. Um, Like that woundedness, I observed it in them. I picked it up from, you know, they modeled that for me in some ways. And they also modeled for me incredibly generous ways of loving and incredible resiliency, you know, but but we learn all of it from somewhere, you know, like we get handed this biological set of materials and then we learn how to apply it to what life gives us. And, and we, we rob ourselves of a lot of understanding and acceptance. I think if we don't look at, at where that comes from, I think that's a huge part of what our country suffers from in a, in a great way right now isn't, is a lack of sort of understanding what we've done and what created us and where we've come from, you know, which is why we keep repeating the same mistakes. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Melissa Phoebos, author of two memoirs entitled Whip Smart and Abandon Me. Our interview was recorded on Skype. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? I'm going to read a little bit from Jeanette Winterson's book, Written on the Body. 
The clavicle or collarbone. I cannot think of the double curve, lithe and flowing with movement as a bony ridge. I think of it as the musical instrument that bears the same root, clavis, key, clavichord, the first stringed instrument with a keyboard. Your clavicle is both keyboard and key. If I push my fingers into the recesses behind the bone, I find you like a soft shell crab. I find the openings between the springs of muscle where I can press myself into the cords of your neck. The bone runs in perfect scale from sternum to scapula. It feels lathe turned. Why should a bone be balletic? You have a dress with a décolletage to emphasize your breasts. I suppose the cleavage is the proper focus, but what I wanted to do was to fasten my index finger and thumb at the bolts of your collarbone push out, spreading the web of my hand until it caught against your throat. You asked me if I wanted to strangle you. No, I wanted to fit you, not just in the obvious ways, but in so many indentations. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, to remember you, it's my own body. Body I touch. Thus she was, here and here. The physical memory blunders through the doors the mind has tried to seal, a skeleton key to Bluebeard's chamber, the bloody key that unlocks pain. Wisdom says forget, the body howls, the bolts of your collarbone undo me. Thus she was, here and here. Ugh, it's just so much. <laughs> so tell me, tell me why you chose that. I chose that because it's um it was the it was the first piece of writing that I remember reading. I was a teenager when I first read this book and I'd loved many books and many writers and many kinds of writing, but this was the first piece of writing I remember reading and thinking that like that's what I want to be able to do. You know, she's so intense, like she's so passionate and sensual and it's so much about the body and there's so much emotion in it. But at the same time, it's both intellectually and technically astute, you know, it's just like this scalpel and, ugh. and she also just gets to these lines, like the bloody key that unlocks pain. Like, are you kidding me? If one of my students opened something with that, I would just strike a red line right through it, you know, but somehow she just like builds the passage so that you're like, yes, the bloody key that unlocks pain, you know? And I, and that's something that I think I always want to remember as a writer that like, you can do anything, you know, you have to do anything. You just have to build the structure that can contain it, you know? Can you read something that you wrote? Maybe it was something that was tricky or changed a lot from the first draft. By the time I looked up at Lola, I had spent hours under tattoo guns, had slid poison needles into my arms, had shoved my own hand down my throat, had flung my body at so many perilous things, but I had never wanted to die. I was not a masochist. What I mean is the difference between what is holy and what is pathological is sometimes a matter of fashion. What I mean is, maybe I already knew that my own healing would never look like a laying of hands, not the gentle kind. Maybe I wanted to spare that girl the extra hell of believing she was broken. We are all broken, and repair often hurts, and the ways we find to fix ourselves do not always look like fixing. Sometimes they fail, but they are never wrong. So tell me why you chose that. I chose that because that was a... Oh, that. What comes before that is a scene where I describe seeing something kind of shocking um, and 
imagining my young self at like 12 years old and sort of showing it to her. And in my, I, I wrote that scene in my first book and I interpreted it as me trying to sort of shock that young version of myself and sort of kill her innocence. And I thought of it as kind of like this violent thing. And it was something that I came to late in the writing of this new book where I sort of revisioned the whole scene and I thought, oh, I wasn't trying to like brutalize her or kill her innocence. Maybe I was just trying to show her that, like show her that something could look broken or depraved or dark from the outside, but actually sometimes that's what we do to try to save ourselves and that's okay. You know, like, like maybe I was trying to say something to that younger self about the thing we were just talking about to be like, it's okay if you're doing things that you feel bad about, sometimes we have to do that and it's not going to last forever. Where do you write? I write everywhere. I love to write at my desk, but I have learned because I'm such a busy lady to not be precious about where I work. So I can put headphones on and I can work anywhere. And actually one of my favorite places to work is on an airplane. I sort of love the feeling of being trapped it doesn't really make any sense, but I but I get a lot of work done on air, airplanes. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I don't know that I ever get away from writing, but I will say that there are I can get very sort of trapped in my in my head and my heart and my the interior of my experience and writing as much as it requires your fingers to move is largely an interior experience and but I'm a very physical person and so Um, I'm a runner and I've been a long distance runner for many, many years since I was a teenager. And that feels like a very necessary sort of counterpart to just have my body in, in motion. And I, you know, I often am thinking about writing while I'm doing that, but it is a very different way of occupying my thoughts or the world or my own being, you know? And then I think also just with other people, like in interaction with other people, um, I can forget and move out of that sort of interior space, um, and, and connect. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I have sort of a small stable of very smart readers who are people who some of them are writers, some of them aren't, but they're very close friends and very smart readers of literature in general, but they know, they know me, they know what I'm writing about and they know my my weaknesses and my indulgences, right? They can see my blind spots. And so I show them the work usually after I've gotten through a few drafts and I know what I'm writing about and I need someone to show me what I'm, what I can't see. And how have you dealt with rejection? (laughs) Um, often and for a very long time. And, uh, you know, rejection is, it's like everybody's worst fear in many ways, you know? And I think writers are often very sensitive, self-interested people. And so rejection for us is particularly wounding and it is required. You know, it is a mandatory part of our life if we choose to build that life around writing. And for me, you know, maybe the characteristic that I value above all else when it comes to, you know, my life as a writer is resiliency. And maybe just in life, I value, I think it's so useful, um, because rejection hurts. It's never going to not hurt. It hurts less over time for sure. You know, it definitely doesn't hurt like it once did, but sometimes it still hurts really bad. And the important thing is, is not to avoid being hurt, but being able to muster your resiliency and to not ever let that stop you. Like I, 
it can hurt. It can, it can be like this screaming throb of, of pain sometimes. Um, but it never stops me. The work it never stops me from keeping going. Um, and that might be the most important characteristic that a writer has. And what is your favorite word? You know, I, I, I just couldn't possibly pick, but I will say that at least for this book, the words that I found myself going to most often were abandon and tender and mouth, Ugh, mouth. I use the word mouth and everything is a mouth. It makes sense. I'm a very mouthy person. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Melissa Phoebos, author of two memoirs entitled Whip Smart and Abandon Me. Our interview was recorded on Skype. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The First Draft theme music was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.